Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the sentence that I want to focus on this morning. That is the sentence that some historians would tell you started the Reformation. The sentence that started the Reformation. The question you have to ask yourself is, why? What is it about these words, about this short expression, that could have had the power, that could have contained within itself the ability to launch such a great revival of truth in the church? But if you want to understand why that sentence of the power to start the Reformation, you have to understand what was the question that that sentence had the power to answer. What was the question the sentence had the power to answer? If you want to understand the question, you have to know a little bit about my cousin Jeff. My cousin Jeff, years ago, was on a road trip driving across the country and did not start on time. So he was behind on the road. He found himself late at night on the highway, basically alone, no other cars out there. And the solitude appealed to him. He enjoyed the long trip. His mind wandered. He thought about all sorts of things. Um, thought a lot about what he was going to do with his life, what the, the, the years ahead had in store, that sort of thing. The things you think about. Alone in the dark on the highway, driving probably 90 miles an hour. Because of his rate of travel, Jeff consumed gasoline at a fast pace, and he found that he wasn't going to be able to make it home without stopping for gas. So late at night, in the middle of the middle where he pulled off the highway, he stopped for gas, he went in to pay for the gas, and when he came back and got his car and started the engine, he found there was someone sitting in the passenger seat, a man in the passenger seat behind him, a man who was holding a gun. And as Jeff stared down the barrel of this gun, things came into focus for him. Along the course of the evening, as he was driving, he thought about all sorts of stuff, all sorts of questions, what he was going to do with his life. And now suddenly, there was just one question in Jeff's mind. As he stared down the barrel of the gun, he asked himself, what do I have to do with it? The future didn't matter anymore. None of the concerns he had mattered any longer. It was just the one thing, just the one question that needed to be answered. What do I have to do to live? And everything depended on it. If he answered that question wrong, there would be no future. He had to get this right. It turns out in Jeff's circumstance, what he had to do was follow one commandment and make one sacrifice. The commandment was, give me your wallet, and the sacrifice was the contents therein. And he lived. He lived. He followed the command, he made the sacrifice, and he lived. When this happened, Jeff was in college. He's a little older than I am, so I was a little bit younger. And when I heard about this horrible, traumatic thing that had happened to my cousin, of course, I felt a lot of sympathy for him. My first question was, well, why didn't you disarm? <laughs> Just gave your wallet up? <laughs> now I look back and I understand that in moments like that, 
What's important to you comes into focus. What really matters comes into focus. The problem is, we don't live staring down the barrel of a gun. And as a result, the questions that we spend our time on are not the questions ultimately that matter. What do I have to do to live? You're going to spend a lot less time on that question over the next week than you're going to spend on uh, what are we going to watch? What are we going to eat? What am I going to wear? As if those were the important things. What matters most in your life this week is, is how much Netflix you will get at, or, or how much food you will consume, uh, or what you'll wear, what people will think about what you wear. We just don't have our priorities straight. Uh, do you remember Flannery O'Connor's story, A Good Man is Hard to Find? The, the criminal in that story, the misfits, at the end of the story, it speaks about his grandmother who he's been terrorizing, holding a gun on, and uh, he says these words about her. She's kind of a terrible person once you get to know her, but in the end, she is a little bit heroic, and the things that she says are actually true. And the misfit says these words about her. She would have been a good woman if there had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. I think that's a true statement, not just for her, but for a lot of us. If we had to die well, nobly, if we had to make the ultimate sacrifice, we'd like to think we'd be heroic in that moment. That's not the hard part. The hard part is all the other moments when you're not staring down the barrel of God. If you want to understand the Reformation, you want to understand at least how it began, how it began, you have to realize that the Reformation is what happens when you find yourself focused on the most important question that you will ever ask, and you realize the answer you learned in church is absolutely wrong. Because that's what Martin Luther found himself confronting. The most important question, what must I do to live? And realizing the answer you've grown up with, the answer that religious authorities throughout his life had told him was the right answer, could not be correct. It's wrong. What happens when you realize that is the Reformation. The righteous should live by faith. So, if the question is, what do we have to do to live? What do I have to do to live? How do you answer that question? Well, answers to that question have a history. The Bible gives us a history of that question being answered. So we need to go back to the beginning of the garden and ask ourselves, how was the most important question you'll ever ask answered in the garden? Before the fall, when Adam and Eve found themselves in this idyllic place, the first human beings in this beautiful place, surrounded by God's creation and given dominion over the power to name the things that they saw around them, how did you answer the question then? If Adam wanted to live, what is it that he had to do? It turns out the answer is really simple. Really simple. All he had to do was obey. If he had obeyed, he would have lived. That's the idea. That's simple. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. This is in chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity on condition of perfect and personal obedience. All he had to do was obey. 
But if you hear the last part of that perfect and personal obedience, maybe you get a little nervous and you think, wow, I mean, who's capable of that? But remember the context. When we say that Adam had to obey perfectly, what he had to obey perfectly was one rule. This was pretty easy. Right? It had to do with uh, food and what you could eat. You could eat anything you wanted except for the fruit of that one tree. That one thing was forbidden. This is a pretty easy moral code to live by. Right? All that was expected of him in terms of obedience was basically just do what seems right to you and you don't eat from that tree. Really. Quite simple. Just one command. One command that he had to King James would read this way, it's Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. That was the sum total of the law. Paul was hanging over his head. But instead of doing what he had to do to live, Adam did the one thing he could do to die. As a consequence, in the fall, we all fell. The, the fall. The sin of Adam was a sin that led to evil for all of us. By one trespass, Romans 5, 18 says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So what that means for us is that thanks to the fall, thanks to the consequences of sin, the answer to the most important question you'll ever ask became complicated. It had been pretty easy. If you think back, if you could just go back to the garden and do whatever you want, except that one thing, this seems like, okay, I can clear that bar. But now, as a consequence of the sin, things got a little complicated. So in all my life, so there's a change. Right? In terms of the command that had to be obeyed, the one rule, that got a lot harder because a lot more rules was followed. Right? Adam let Abraham live before the law was given, but in the time of Moses, God gives the law, and the law is a lot of rules. So if you really want to be holy, if you really want uh, to practice perfect obedience, God does spell out what you need to do. It's just not an easy thing to do. It's not even an easy thing to, to know that you're meant to do it. Right? You can want very much to keep all the rules, but then you have to figure out what all the rules are, and there's actually a lot of them. It's not like a tax code, but it's still, it's Levitical extent, and that's still pretty complicated. But there was another change as well. It's not just that there were now more rules to keep. Because of the effects of sin on the human heart, there's a lot less ability. A lot less ability to keep it. Because sin had had an effect on us. So, after the fall, we find ourselves in this strange situation where more is expected of us and we have less ability to do it than we have before. If you think about the more that's expected too, it's not just that, that now there's more law, like there used to be one command and now there's more commands. There's actually something in addition to that, there's sacrifice. But the sin created a debt that needed to be paid. There was a reckoning that needed to happen. So now, Every attempt to answer the question, what must I do to live, has to have two components to it. Not just obedience, but also sacrifice. Because you have to do something about perfect obedience, but you also have to do something about the death of the sin. The problem has become much harder. 
more to do than Adam had in last century with. And you see this in Old Testament religion. If you think about the way we speak of the Old Testament era, we talk about this idea that you would be righteous if you kept the law. But of course, it was more than just keeping the law, it was also making the sacrifices. But making the sacrifices was essential as well, because something had to be done about sin. So, what was wrong with the way the church was answering the question, what do I have to do to live? What was wrong with that answer? Martin Luther was different than we are. He was a man like us, but it was a little bit different. He was what we would call oversensitive. Most of us, when we do something wrong, we don't beat ourselves up over it. We realize, hey, the air is human. You know, sure, I sinned. Everybody sins. You can't not sin. Come on, don't beat yourself up over it. Martin Luther wasn't like that. He beat himself up over it. He really didn't want to sin. And when he did, he was really frustrated by it. The way of putting it is, he lived his life as if he were always looking at the barrel. So the most important question for him was not what am I going to wear, what am I going to eat, that sort of thing. It really was, what do I have to do to live? And when he turned to the church for an answer to that question, the church said to him the same thing that was the answer in the garden. The church said, okay. The answer hasn't changed. Want to live, you have to obey. But Luther realized this isn't the garden anymore. The answer from the garden can't be the same as the answer now. Things are harder now. There's more of a problem and less ability to solve it. We can't simply obey. And the church said, You're right. You can't just obey. You need a little help. You have to grace us. Jesus came into the world to help. He knew it was harder now. And so on the cross, he created all this grace. And this grace helps you do what you need to do in order to live. It's true that on your own, you can't do it. Because there's so much that needs to be done. And you have so much less ability than Adam did before the fall. So that's impossible. We are impossible. You need help in order to obey and grace helps. Grace is what the church is all about. Dispensing grace. Giving you grace. That's what we do. So the church's answer was grace. Kind of. Because what they meant by grace was a little bit different than what we mean by grace. They saw the purpose of Jesus coming into the world as help. Jesus came here and helped you. The problem was that help didn't seem to be good. With this answer, obedience plus help from grace, Luther can see there were some problems. There's some shortcomings with this. Uh, first of all, this is the biggest one obedience can be measured. Obedience is not some sort of abstract thing, and you just can't tell whether or not you're being obedient. It's maybe not as easy to count as steps. But if you were to make an obedience tracker, you your conscience of whether or not you're keeping the rules. And Luther could see that his obedience wasn't perfect. He could see that despite the fact that he wanted to obey, despite the fact that he had the sacraments of the church helping him by infusing grace in him, he still wasn't good enough. 
that he was still falling short. He could measure his obedience. He could see that he wasn't doing what he needed to do in order to live. So that was a problem. The other problem was this. The logic of, of this helping grace was that because of sin, you have less ability than you had before. So your ability needs to be supplemented. But Luther found, the, the deeper in the scripture that he found, that the church was really exaggerating how much ability we human beings In other words, the damage of sin was much greater than when people were giving it credit to. They were assuming that because of sin, you know, okay, now we're not perfect, but our reasoning ability is basically intact. Our wills are basically unhindered. So we're basically able to do what we need to do. We just need some help. Well, Luther realized what the witness of Scripture was the effects of sin are much worse than that. But the ability that you possess is much less than you think it is. And of course, if obedience can be measured, if you see the tall story, and you see that the ability that you possess and the people around you possess is actually quite small, then the only answer for the church is to devalue the sin. In other words, for the whole system to work, what we have to do is say, well, sin is not as bad as you think it is. I mean, yeah, there are some deadly sins, and you totally don't want to be talking those things, but menial sins, that's not such a big deal. And there are sins that you could commit the brave way out of. And in Martin Luther's time, there were sins you could commit and then behave your way out of as well. So, in other words, to deal with this great problem, what the church was doing was basically lowering the bar that you had to do. The problem was it didn't have the authority to do that. It wasn't in the church's power to forgive those sins or scripture did not. So how did Romans 1, 17 change everything? Just that one sentence, the righteous shall live by faith, how did that change everything? When Luther read that sentence, what he realized that if the righteous live by faith, then what that means is that Jesus didn't come here to help us. Jesus came here to save us. That's a completely different thing. Paul had not written the church's gospel. He had not written these words. The righteous shall live by righteousness, and if that gets too hard, grace and help. Instead, he had said, the righteous shall live by faith, and not a generic faith. It wasn't, you got to have faith, just be optimistic. Specifically, by faith in Jesus Christ and what he had done. What do I have to do today? Is the question is intimately connected with what Christ has already done. So, why Jesus? Why faith in Jesus? Because Jesus had done what Adam had failed to do and more. Adam had one commandment and no sacrifice in him. He failed. Jesus has many commands to be and also a great sacrifice to make, and he does both of those things. So that if you stand with Adam and his answer, you die. But if you stand with Jesus and his answer, you live. Because Jesus had addressed the need for perfect obedience through his life. Uh, this is what theologians call 
active obedience. The actions of his life, Jesus had done everything that was required for that perfect and personal obedience to fulfill those original terms that were laid out for Adam. But also, in his life, he had made a sacrifice that perfectly atoned for the debt of sin. That's what theologians call his passive obedience. Passive not in the sense of uh, just laying back and doing nothing, but passive is his action. Obedience is suffering. So the obedience of Jesus can take care of both sides of the question. And that's why faith in Jesus specifically is necessary. Jesus answered the question for obedience, and the only way for us to be answered the question for ourselves is to have faith. Amen. Made righteous in God's eyes by faithful love in Christ Jesus. And this is not just the right answer to the question, but it's always been the right answer, going back a long way. It's not the case. <coughs> faith became the answer at the Reformation. It's not the case that faith became the answer at the cross. Faith was the answer much farther back than that. It was the answer ever since the fall. Ever since Genesis 3.15, faith in Christ had always been the only right way to answer the question. Obedience was always the wrong answer once sin entered into the picture. And yet, it's always been the answer that human beings have been compelled to try. We've always told ourselves that all we have to do is obey. All we need to do is be good. We tell ourselves that we have more power to be good than we really have. We tell ourselves we don't need to be as good as we really need to be. All so that the question ultimately, its answer, lies within us, within our power. So we do, in our life, the exact same thing the church of Martin Luther's day was We devalue the sin. We exaggerate the ability. We don't pay attention to the gap between our real obedience and what's expected of us. So that we can be blind to the reality that Scripture reveals. But from Genesis 3.15 forward, God first ended that his great covenant with grace and promise to save the answer to this question has always been faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. During the era of the law, the answer was faith. During the era of the gospel, the answer remains faith. You're saved by faith and not by works. There's nothing that you can boast about except for Jesus Christ. As simple as it was, as obvious as it was, this was revolutionary. What made it more revolutionary was the realization that the words immediately preceding the sentence that started the Reformation, the righteous shall live by faith, the words as it was written. Those great words are not great New Testament words anymore than the great Reformation words. Those are Old Testament words from the prophet of Adam. This is the Old Testament was saved by faith, the righteous live by faith. How does the right answer change us? In Luther's case, two things, joy and awe. First, there was joy. 
Because, like I said, he was a man who felt the burden deeply and realized his inability to do what he was being told was the right answer. So now to realize Jesus had already done it. And that righteousness was a question of having faith in him, not what I do. Joy. That burden is lifted. The gospel is a miracle. The idea that a person dead in sins can be brought to life is miraculous. And we tell ourselves we no longer live in the age of miracles. It's only because our eyes are blinded to the fact that Jesus is bringing the gold to life all around us if we only have eyes to see. That's joyful. But it's also awe-inspiring as well. Because when Luther recognized his own inability do what needed to be done. Part of the reason it couldn't be done was it was so terrible. He couldn't obey enough, but he could also make no sacrifice. It was enough. He could not give enough of himself to pay the price. To realize Jesus had done these things, Jesus of all people. For the Son of God to take on flesh and dwell among us as a human being, lowering himself, died the death, and died. The reasons he died is. Is even worse. To do all that, our behalf, to Luther with awe, it should fill us with awe as well. Christ paid an inconceivable price so that we can have life in the end. And if we don't feel the joy, if we don't sense that awe, it might be because we're still trying to answer the most important question we'll ever face. Wrong way. We're still trying to answer with our obedience. We're still lying to ourselves about our ability to do that. The good news is we don't need. The beauty of the gospel is that we can be honest about how bad our situation is. We can be honest about how bad we are and how hopeless uh, our ability to do what must be done is. We can admit all of that because we can say all of those things without hopelessness. Jesus Christ allows us to be honest about what we are, who we are. So what do I have to do to live? What do I have to do to avoid judgment? What do I have to do to fulfill my purpose to do me? To be what I'm meant to be? All that I have to do, all that you have to do, is have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who lived a perfect life and made a perfect sacrifice so that you could become a fellow heir with him of eternal life. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.